This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Role-playing Wodehouse. Malta. The Instant Pot Mystery. And The Witches of Chiloe. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game, without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But here in the gaming hut, everyone's wearing flannels and gazing languidly out across the lawn or trying to dodge their aunt, uh, scheming to get an extra helping of Anatole's famous soup and, by and large, wasting time continuously. So in that respect, it's actually very much like the regular gaming hut. <laughs> Much like the theme of this very show. Much like beloved uh, Patreon backer Doc Cross asks us how one might go about running an RPG set in the world of Jeeves and Worcester, Smith, Uncle Fred, and the rest of the Wodehousian cast of characters. Extra points, offers Doc, a game designer to his core, if you can tell us how to update it to modern times. You, of course, as a sentient English speaker are in love with Woodhouse, but uh, also, like myself, I suspect you've despaired of ever capturing it in any form, possibly even including the filmed word, much less the gamed word. What's your thoughts? Well, first of all, uh, note listeners that can uh, pronounce the P in, in Smith uh, for this instance, just so you, you would know what he was talking about. Right. Of course, the, the From now on, silent, we shan't do it. As in Peshrimp. Exactly. Or Psychopology. Right, exactly. I, I have to say that I'm in like with Woodhouse. And I actually prefer the uh, Fry and Laurie uh, TV version to actually reading the books. There, there will be a there will be a series of instructive beatings in between segments. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's just I find it somewhat effortful to 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 load the voice uh, while reading. Um, but anyway, uh, I certainly know the the gist and the uh, the, the general uh, thing we're aiming at here. And of course, like any game designer, when asked this question, I ask myself. What have I designed in the past that I could rope into this uh, task? So the first uh, challenge you're going to have is that it's 
they're not adventure stories per se. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, most of them are the whole point of the plot is an umbrella is stolen and nonsense ensues or, uh, you know, someone is in danger of marrying someone horrible. You want to prevent that from happening. Or, of, of course, uh, the basic story is, uh, you know, Worcester, uh, the toffee-nosed prat that he is, gets himself in some sort of uh, ridiculous trouble that Jeeves has to extricate him from without Worcester really noticing that that's ever happened. And so these are not uh, go down to the uh, dungeon and uh, uh, kill a thing or get out of danger. It's about uh, hijinks. And, and comedy is very difficult to do in uh, role-playing. So the first thing I would do is think about uh, stealing the tagline mechanics that started out in the dying earth and then were ported into skullduggery which is the generic version of that system because one of the things that's going to be very difficult to convey here uh, is not only comedy which is super hard in role-playing but the particular form of light drollery that would have specializes in it's all about the voice it's all about having characters who can talk in his lingo and so something that uh, in uh, the dying earth you are given pre-supplied little snippets of dialogue and then given an in-game uh, resource reward for deploying them. So that's the, the first thing that I would start to steal. Uh, Ken, what would the first thing that you would uh, either invent or steal from somewhere else in order to make uh, Woodhouse role-playing possible? This might be the time to try stealing Fiasco. Uh, Fiasco is so great uh, and so true to itself that I've never figured out how you would steal it, but I think you might be able to steal it for a Woodhousian adventure because those are also about continuous collapse, but producing an eventual winner at the end. Fiasco has just as many black dice as white dice. And you could, uh, I think possibly come up with a methodology whereby the taglines offer rewards as do uh, leaning into your, uh, your, 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 your fecklessness, uh, as they do in fiasco and the sort of that combination economy might drive a sort of a, uh, wood, wood house in rather than Cohen brothers version of fiasco. I think you could maybe build something up. Plus the characters in fiasco begin with that sort of net of acquaintanceship that Woodhouse characters begin with. So you begin with that, um, uh, that with the ball sort of already spinning in the way that a Woodhouse story does. Right. And I guess you would just uh, bolt on a fix where uh, the lovable, uh, if somewhat undeserving of rescue character gets uh, rescued at the end rather than uh, destroyed. The thing about uh, Woodhouse is that it's about enjoying the recapitulation of uh, events. And, uh, you know, there's only X number of plot devices he uses and characters he brings back. And it's all about the satisfaction of taking you where you, you know you're going to go. And so... What I would probably be inclined to, to dust off in order to do this would be one of my older designs called Pantheon and other role-playing games, which is less of a role-playing game, as uh, as trad uh, gamers would call it, and more of a, a fusion of that plus uh, a storytelling uh, game. And so uh, you identify with a particular character, uh, but you're throwing new sentences into a narrative that you're created. And... The object of this is to get uh, a point reward uh, for uh, how many standard elements of the subgenre that you're playing with you succeed in adding to the thing. And so I think that would give people who really love Woodhouse a chance to, okay, well, uh, let's throw in a, okay, let's bring in a Spode joke. And once you do that, uh, once you bring that character in, here's all these other 
possible things that can happen. And so you're looking at, you know, what all of the different elements of a story uh, of his that you want to see and how many of them you can throw in while uh, retaining that sort of uh, modicum of narrative coherence that you need in order for it all to feel like a a story. So if uh, if someone forced me to do a Woodhouse game, I think I would uh, dust off uh, Pantheon. All right. Um, So... I think that we sort of have a bunch of mechanics that sort of point to it. I believe you'd probably want to talk about some way to provide a narrative or reward uh, in game. Uh, and that could be, you know, you provide for every punishment die you inflict on the birdie, you have to give a reward die to the Jeeves so that the Jeeves can eventually accumulate enough reward dice to sort out every problem. And the Jeeves character that, of course, the trouble, as with all characters after pl- players have to play, uh, geniuses is you have to be always thinking about how to rescue someone from the problem that has been set up. And so the, the, much like the, much like the stories do, they sort of stand or fall in this case on the, 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 the brilliance of Jeeves or Smith or whoever the, the smarter than everybody character happens to be. And is that you, can you think of a way to, backstop that player so that they can play the genius or is it just a matter of their resolution happens at the end and if it isn't super brilliant or isn't super funny the mechanics will force it to happen anyway uh, this goes d- dangerously beyond our remit but of course going in- into dangerous territory is, is part and part that is part of our remit um uh that i would almost uh, think that woodhouse gaming would be a cooperative board game in which you are all collectively Jeeves and the, uh, the, uh, the birdie character, uh, is moving around the board, getting into trouble. And you're trying to get him to navigate uh, away from all of the possible, uh, social and, uh, sometimes even physical dangers, uh, of, of whatever the scenario is so that you would have a different board with a different arrangement of, uh, social faux pas and disasters and sort of a social socially kill Dr. Lucky type situation. Yes. And so that you're all uh, trying to uh, prevent your uh, upper class twit from, uh, from being destroyed or worse uh, married to someone unsuitable. Yeah. The, 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 the notion because Jeeves often exposes Bertie to danger in order to more thoroughly rescue him in a deserving fashion, but Jeeves never, uh, risks um, an unsuitable marriage that would put Jeeves out of a job. So you sort of have a dual incentive system to sort of ruin Bertie's life in the short term, but save him in the, in the, in the longer term. Um, I think that a kill Dr. Lucky idea is, is kind of interesting. And I think you could do it even without a board. You could do it as uh player characters, uh, players being rotating sort of GMs presenting obstacles, just like the cards in kill Dr. Lucky do. And then, you could, you, I, th- I think that we are, we are as with, um, uh, Blanding's, uh, castle. We are in the, we are in the neighborhood of building our dream house, uh, at this moment from the components that we can see littering the lawn in front of us. Right. Well, I would say going any further would be us actually doing work. So right. I think we need so to outside the spirit of, of Bertie. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Um, do, do we want to get our, go for our extra points and talk about how Jeeves and Worcester can operate in modern times? I think this is an even bigger question. I think you'd have to move it to Hollywood. I think you'd have to be like the agent or manager or something of a ditzy beloved Hollywood star or starlet. And you're just trying to keep them from having unsettable liaisons that would get you, you know, uh, canned or moved on. And, uh, 
because those are the only people in the world who are both liked well enough to be birdies, but uh, rich idiots immune from social social damage in the way that uh, the Edwardian aristocrats were. What do you think? Right. Although, uh, although becoming increasingly yes, <laughs> well, well, popular, yes. but even in the 10 days between our recording and this dropping, <laughs> yes, there will right. probably be no something doubt. else horrible happening in that milieu. And in every milieu where uh, <laughs> uh, high status twits exist, right? right? That's a huge challenge of recovering that uh, sort of sense of amusement over the fact that the, of, of the lovable but idiotic aristocrat, mm-hmm. uh, it was sort of, you know, titillatingly scandalous in Woodhouse's time. And, and now, of course, uh, it's hard to get away from, oh, wait a minute, you know, we're being destroyed by a new phalanx of uh, high-status idiots, and they're mm-hmm. all in charge. Right. And so how do you do a, a non-cynical version of that where the person is is kind of lovable? You'd almost have to, you know, have your, uh, you know, set, set it in a fictionalized Tesla where you, your uh, borderline uh, spectrum... Uh, CEO is going to save the world with his renewable energy plan if you can just, you know, prevent him from committing uh, this social faux pas or that social faux pas. So, you know, you might be the, you know, the, the beleaguered uh, publicity uh, relations manager of a, uh, a an important tech figure who's going to save the world if he doesn't uh, disgrace himself or put his uh, foot in his mouth. So, you know, maybe Silicon Valley, but even that, you know, the actual HBO yeah. show, Silicon Valley, is uh, deeply uh, dark and cynical. And I don't know if we can, I think that's, I mean, people read Woodhouse now for the uh, quite different reason. Uh, now it's, you know, nostalgic uh, to read about uh, upper class twits who are just being twits and, you know, the worst things they make at, you know, toast crumbs on their cuffs or whatever. Uh, but the, uh, the real heirs, to uh, Bertie Wister are, you know, mismanaging Brexit even as we speak. So, uh, you know, re- really, Ar- Armando Iannucci is is our Woodhouse today, but that spirit of that is completely uh, 180. Yeah. So the, uh, yeah, the Woodhouse is, is very much as, as much a fantasy realm as, as Narnia or uh, uh, Middle Earth, um, and rather more of one than Westeros, as it turns out. Um, so I guess, yeah, think, think about fantasy and think about reinforcing those tropes and think about the fact that uh, since you and I are uh, out of the soup and happily married. We must have won uh, the Woodhouse game without even playing it. And isn't that the model? Yes. And uh, now it's time for our trusty manservant to get us out of this segment into a commercial and into the segment that lies beyond. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers 
who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pelgrane Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The retinal scan and the top-secret dossier tell us that we've once more entered the oh-so-dangerous and shadowy precincts of the Trade Craft Hut. And this time around, uh, as uh, again, uh, 2017 it continues to be a big year for espionage and tradecraft news. It's time for another real-life update. And uh, this time around, I thought we would ask ourselves the question, Hey! What's up with Malta? Malta has been uh, is rarely in the news, and I think that's why people choose to go there to engage in shady activity. Uh, it's the uh, smallest nation in the EU, and uh, there's two big stories uh, that we need to uh, figure out if they're threaded together or not. And I think if you follow the org chart, chart long enough, you can connect any two things. Uh, but those things are the uh, assassination of the uh, journalist... Uh, Daphne Karuna Galizia. She was killed in a car bombing on October 16th, and she was a investigative reporter whose blog was more carefully followed than the actual press in Malta, and a thorn in the side of uh, Maltese officials high and low, and a thorn in the side of organized crime there. Uh, so uh, any number of people uh, could have had a motivation to uh, set that uh, car off. Uh, she was investigating the Panama Papers, which, of course, reveal the uh, hidden offshore accounts of many oligarchic figures around the world, including uh, Vladimir Putin. Here's a name we haven't talked about since <clears throat> probably last episode. Speaking of Putin, we also have the case of the professor. The mysterious professor. The unnamed until now professor. Yes. You know uh, when there's a scandal, uh, when there's somebody whose nickname is the professor, that you're, you're well in uh, espionage land. Uh, so uh, his name is uh, Joseph Mitsud, and uh, he's the guy who uh, either reached out or was reached out to by uh, George Papadopoulos, who has pled guilty in the uh, unfolding or about to unfold Trump campaign collusion case. He made connections for Papadopoulos to uh, talk to someone who Papadopoulos thought was Putin's niece, but oddly enough wasn't. Weird, weird how that <laughs> happened. So anyway, he Mitsud was a former aide to a, an ex foreign minister of Malta, and he ran a thing called the London Academy of Diplomacy, which weirdly enough, as he's gone to ground, has also essentially vanished from the face of the earth. All right, it's at the University of Stirling in Scotland. That's a real place. Um, do people like go there and the and the doors are like locked and and whatnot? Well, he, or it, he had offices in in London. Mm -hmm. particular street in uh, in London, and they've, they've closed up. Right. So he, I guess this is a uh, sort of, he had an offshoot operation that was, uh, uh, ha had an affiliation to a real institution, but his uh, his classrooms in London are no longer uh, extant. Right. So uh, what is the broader context uh, that will uh, enable our listeners to uh, figure out 
how all of these uh, strange and, and shadowy things uh, go together. Well, uh, there is an even broader, broader context, because, of course, simultaneously to all of this, uh, the Panama Papers, uh, which got uh, uh, exposed by you know lengthy years of investigative journalism, uh, have now turned their collective chimera gaze to Malta, where it turns out that huge numbers of the Maltese establishment have been acting as money launderers for other rich interests. Um, people have been keeping uh, money in tax-exempt accounts in Malta, which is one of the reasons that Malta's economy functions at all. And to what extent is Malta itself basically a mafia state being run by uh, the the large money laundering, well, it hesitates to say firms, but I guess that's what they are, the large money laundering families, um, for the interests of them and then paying off the various elements of the Maltese government, uh, including the Prime Minister Muscat, who, of course, came to into office as a corruption fighter. And, hey, there you go, look at that, look at all this corruption that he has right handy nearby to fight. The European Parliament just the other day voted... Are you telling me that he drained the swamp? I, I'm saying that he may have drunk the swamp. Yeah. <laughs> He, he set um, uh, expert swamps, uh, swampies into the swamp to he help drain it. A hostile takeover of the swamp. Right. So the um, uh, European Parliament voted overwhelmingly to, quote unquote, reinforce the rule of law or investigate the fall <laughs> of the rule of law in Malta based on the assassination, based on the Maltese FIAU, which is the Financial Investigative Agency in Malta, uh, un uncovering a huge number of what are called PEPs or politically exposed persons tied into the Panama papers and tied into all of these money laundering cases and uh the the maltese uh government is simultaneously promising to get to the bottom of it and denying that there is any bottom of anything to get to so we have a whole other question which is is a real story this panama Papers situation being used uh, or, or rather is it providing chaff in the form of the professor and the um uh, putinist and uh, Trumpist connections uh, to keep everyone distracted from the actual problem, which is this giant money laundering problem. And uh, obviously, um, Daphne Karuna uh, Galizia was investigating all manner of ill doings in Malta, not just whether or not um, uh, someone was connected to the American elections, but in very much case, whether someone was actually uh, bribing the prime minister to look the other way uh, for a series of money launderings. And Malta, you know, historically, since independence, has basically existed to let Italian government officials and those connected to them do things that the Italian government, even the Italian government, might look askance at. So if it has expanded that beyond the Italian mafia to the Russian mafia, there's your connection right there. Right, because, of course, one of the origin points of the Russian information war is uh, one of them is the, the downfall of, of Gaddafi and is being pulled from his car and, and murdered, which apparently Putin took personally. Yeah. Um, and the other one is the original uh, Panama Papers exposure of uh, Putin's uh, vast, ill-gotten uh, wealth on which he uh, assumed was part of a conspiracy launched against him by uh, Hillary Clinton and others. And so this is why... Uh, he decided, um, oh, all those democracies around the world, let's just uh, find their fault lines and stick a screwdriver in them uh, in order to, because uh, Putin would like to continue being Putin and would like to continue having all of that 
uh, vast wealth. So, and again, that's that's the sort of thing that the uh, Russian intelligence services did in the Cold War. They found fault lines and stuck screwdrivers into them. It's not like this was a new innovation of Putin's. He grew up as a KGB officer, for God's sake. He just said, well, uh, everybody turn back, uh, turn turn on the machine from half to full uh, flight we, speed we ahead. We just didn't realize that the screwdrivers would come in the form of frog memes this time around. <laughs> we, we left our fault lines woefully unattended for a while. As you uh, do. Yes, as we do. So, uh, uh, Knights Black Agents, uh, your uh, character who is uh, uh, fleeing a conspiracy which they have either discovered or about to discover is uh, run against them by vampires, and they have cause to go to Malta. What does our Knights Black Agents character get up to in Malta? Um, there's a couple of things you can get up to in Malta. I mean, the first one is Malta is covered in barrow mounds. Uh, they go back to Neolithic times, so... Uh, great vampire hideout place. If your vampire conspiracy goes back to uh, Cro-Magnon times uh, or Stonehenge times, that there could be a buried master vampire in Malta sort of uh, resembling, if you will, the uh, financial spider that uh, uh, twitches most of Southern Europe's money laundering one way or the other. Malta is also, uh, you know, a lovely tourist island. There are uh, medieval castles. The Crusaders uh, held on to Malta and famously drove back the the Turk uh, the, the Turks in 1585. So you have any number of Templar and Hospitaller uh, relics that you can uh, uh, uncover that might or might not be useful against uh, vampire attackers as much as they were against the Ottoman Turk. Um, and uh, Malta, as I think we've alluded to, is sort of a home from home for a number of shadowy figures, uh, both um, in terms of sort of uh, the former spy game, the former diplomacy game, and the former organized crime game. So lots of people who will give you the inside dirt on whatever it is you're looking for the inside dirt in. And uh, even they have a couple of crusading journalists, as we learn, um, although in this case, we learn it probably um, uh, the worst way you can possibly learn that. But I assume that uh, no one works alone, certainly not in journalism. So there are there are more figures out there um, digging harder and perhaps keeping their head down a little more. Right. So you could go to uh, talk to an investigator into money laundering. And of course, in order to uh, run a continental or global operation, even the vampires need to move money around. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go and talk to an Italian mafia figure, a Russian mafia figure, a uh, crooked a local government official. Uh, there might be a, uh, and of course you've got the SVR in there as well. So if you need to uh, meet up with uh, somebody named the professor, you could do uh, that there as as well. Might be a professor of Balkan history. You don't know that. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, and and uh, likewise, uh, if you're running a an international anti-vampire uh, effort, uh, since you can't trust the intelligence agencies to do that because they always try to, oh well, there's vampires. Let's recruit them and. This is a mistake they keep making again and again. And so if you want to make sure that uh, uh, none of your bosses try to put the vampires on your side, you have to set up your own organization. Uh, and uh, you are not only investigating the money laundering that makes that possible, but you yourself might have to uh, uh, shift some accounts around because uh, the uh, vampires are watching you and you need to uh, uh, be very careful about which shell companies move which money to where. So that could also be where you... Uh, go as an agent to meet your uh, friendly money-moving guy who can make arrangements with you to uh, uh, get you set up with all of the funds that you'll need to uh, buy that uh, a tractor trailer full of rocket launchers. The other thing that Malta has that is unusual is a fairly active cybercrime police unit. And 
This is as measured by the number of times Malta has asked Facebook for the user data behind a given account. Uh, They are, for their size, by far the most uh, active in trying to scamble out data from Facebook and Google um, in, you know, globally they're 29th, but they have like a microscopic population. So per capita, they're, um, uh, uh, they're the number one company or number one country that does that. And even in absolute terms, they ask for more data than South Korea does. Uh, so if South Korea, of course, has probably got a hundred times Malta's population. So the, Notion that someone in Malta is woke to some sort of computer chicanery going on, or perhaps more negatively, that Malta is um, uh, a more borderline democracy than it might be and is trying to stamp out people saying ugly things about the prime minister like he's in bed with a bunch of vampires. Either one of those, I think, could provide you a little bit of a of a hook and a spin that you might not expect going to the sort of, you know, castle of the medieval tip uh, of the medieval hospitalers. Also, in addition to the Knights of Malta, who... Uh, we should mention probably at this point, or else we'll get uh, uh, querulous uh, comments, are connected with the Vatican's potential intelligence service. There may be this connection to a sort of an online, either investigative or counter-investigative uh, activity that might uh, turn its cyber eyes to you, the players, or to the vampires you're going after. Right, and if you discover that there are modern Templars and there's a conspiracy afoot and they're headquartered in Malta, the question uh, is uh, what side are they on? Yeah. <laughs> you know, which which te- are they the the evil uh, satanic uh, Templars that uh, kings used to talk about when they wanted to take the money away from Templars, uh, or are they the heroic anti-vampire forces, or are they uh, a mix of the two, and you have to figure out which faction you want to ally yourself with? Or so, is their notion of fighting vampires a spell that will kill all non-Christian, every everyone who hasn't been baptized? And you're like. Well, I like the part where all the vampires are dead, but I'm not so fond of killing three billion other people. What's what's the area effect on that? That seems uh, terrible. Yeah, what's what's your what's your definition of whether you Yes. Now yeah. are Mormons baptized? Because I know a guy in Utah who seems pretty nice, but Yeah. Pentecostals? Yeah. Yeah. Are you just oh no, it's uh, oh the Orthodox Church on Oh yeah, wow, well, you guys really good. That back. is that yeah. is quite the spell. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's the sort of people you meet in, in vampire uh, conspiracies is people with a, uh, a an agenda that is not yours, but seems allied to it. And perhaps one might argue by extension, it's the sort of people you meet in Malta and even in investigations of Malta. Right. Uh, so our listeners, the next time a news story comes out and there's a, a Malta connection, uh, you can imagine that your uh, characters have gone there and are, are uh, in the thick of it. Uh, but uh, in our real world, there will be uh, plenty of high-status twits, uh, some genuine uh, psychopaths, but hopefully not any actual, real, non-metaphorical vampires. And when vampires have lost their metaphorical freight, it's time for us to sashay into a commercial and through it into another segment.
Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come. But the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure game book in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Help this upper-class dolt of a podcast survive alongside such Patreon backers as... Ryan Lassiter, Chris McLaren, Rich Spainauer, Brendan Power, and Jeremy French. Normally, we are welcomed into the food hut by the aroma of cooking food, uh, be it grilling, be it sautéing, sometimes even be it baking or roasting. But here, here the food is being contained by some sort of pressurized encapsulator, uh, perhaps better known to Robin as the Instant Pot. Robin, you are now one of the Instant Pot people, uh, and I've been in your kitchen. Ken. Ken, yeah, yeah, hail, hail the Instant Pot. And I am here to draw the scales away from your eyes. So first of all, the Instant Pot still fills the room with delicious aroma of cooking. Well, well thank God. I, I assumed that unlike the slow cooker function, uh, that uh, it would just contain all the delicious cooking spots. Because it's, no. it's supposed to be a, a pressure cooker as well as all the other things that it does. It is a pressure cooker. So uh, the Instant Pot is a mysterious appliance uh, which uh, is has uh, a sleeper appeal and uh, foodies all around the world are uh, latching onto it. I first noticed it in a Twitter posting from the godfather of the food hut, John Kowalik, and the claim was this can produce slow cooker delicious uh, ribs in the time that it takes you to pressure cook something. And mm. so, and it turns out that uh, the cult, uh, like the Cthulhu cult, is, has uh, ranged all over the world without people quite realizing it. it. turns out when once you start looking for it, it's everywhere. And so, uh, it's uh, an affordable uh, home cooking appliance. And so, I uh, made the plunge and I got it about uh, three, four weeks ago and I've already well amortized it. I've used it a ton of times and it turns out to be a weird and magical device. Now, the mystery of the device then is, wait a minute, it's a pressure cooker. What is so special about the Instant Pot? Uh, because pressure cookers have existed, uh, not just the stovetop kind that, uh, we understand why people don't use stovetop pressure cookers because they're uh, difficult uh, and at any time in your uh, use of a stovetop pressure cooker, at any time the lid can explode off the top, showering you in food, Denting your ceiling. Nobody wants that. But electric pressure cookers uh, have existed for uh, a long time. So why is everybody all of a sudden crazy for the Instant Pot? And I think part of it is that there's just a new generation of people who've never considered working with a pressure cooker, like me. Um, but also, uh, and, and there's something magical about the Instant Pot. One, it is blessed by the uh, the Magic Beaver. This is created by a group of ex-telecom employees from Ottawa, Ontario, our nation's capital. Mm -hmm. Inspired, perhaps, by the Peace Tower. Uh, yes, indeed. It's, it's a, 
Uh, you could put a peace tower of parsnips in it. And I kept reading articles after article about people are crazy for the Instant Pot. People are crazy. And it's like, but what's new about the Instant Pot? And I finally found an article where there's an actual interview with the makers of the Instant Pot. And it turns out that some of the new multifunctions in this device are uh, new to the Instant Pot. And so one of the crucial things about it is that you can not only pressure cook things, but in addition to being able to um, make porridge and rice, so it's a rice cooker. It's a bunch of things in one. It's a rice cooker. You can get a fancier one than the one I got, which makes yogurt. I didn't bother with that because uh, yogurt is cheap and widely available. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's certain things you don't need to make yourself. It's it's like making kimchi. You just right. uh, you you walk a quarter of a block and buy kimchi. That's how you make kimchi. Right. And and even the one I got, there's things that I can't imagine I would ever bother to do in it. Like you can make a cheesecake in it. Well. I guess that's what you yes. do if you're living in a illegal uh, studio loft and you don't have an oven and you need to make a cheesecake. That would be great. Um, but it turns out that the, the, the magic thing, that, in my view, that makes this uh, all worth it is that there's a saute function. And so you can take all of your ingredients in your stew or whatever and uh, sort of brown them or braise them or whatever ahead of time and then turn on the pressure cooker function. And also it's super duper computerized and uh, apparently adjusts to, uh, you know, gradations of pressure and it pressurizes really super well and, uh, and very quickly. And so consequently, it turns out that unbelievably a brisket uh, done in the instant pot is nearly indistinguishable from one that you've slow cooked for eight hours, except it took you one hour in, instead of eight. That's quite, that's quite a difference. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as you would with the slow cooker, you uh, pop in some liquid smoke, and so you still get that flavor. But uh, uh, and perhaps even more so, the you know the brisket cooks in its own juices. You can do uh, vegetable uh, stews in it as well. I've done a number of uh, sort of curried vegetable dishes. One last night had uh, parsnip and uh, potato and carrots and some uh, uh, tomatoes, and I put that in with some pesto. You cut them up into little pieces, you uh, saute them for a couple of minutes, and then you uh, whack them in for, you know, 13 minutes cooking time and a little less than that pressurizing time, and boom, you've got uh, something that is uh, nearly the same texture as a, uh, a roasted uh, potato dish that would have taken you three, four times the, the amount of time. It doesn't quite get those crispy edges, but they're soft and delicious, and the flavors uh, meld together even more than they would uh, in a roast pan. So it's it's pretty amazing. Now, uh, the the knock on all pressure cookers and all slow cookers, in fact, is uh, give up your hope of anything ever being crisp in them. You can't make crisp chicken skin. You can't make crisp vegetables. You can't make crisp uh, potatoes. Does your Instant Pot uh, allow crispness or do you say as a gifted chef I can achieve crispness with a uh, regular saute pan and I need not worry about uh, making my pressure cooker go outside its its comfort zone if you want something crisp like if you want crisp roasted potatoes I'm still going to put those in the oven with right. olive oil in a pan uh, but there's all sorts of things that you don't want crisp uh, that you uh, can do in the instant pot for example you can do a Perfectly creditable home risotto in 20 minutes. What? Uh, no. Exactly. I did not believe it myself. I don't believe it right now. And I'm hearing it from perhaps the most trusted name in podcasting. I've not only done it, I've done it multiple times. Now, it's not your 
a $40 risotto that you're going to get at a high-end Italian restaurant, but it's a perfectly, perfectly credible home risotto with whatever delicious ingredients you want to put in to go along with the rice in 20 minutes. Well, what about polenta? Can you do polenta in it? Because polenta, the downside of polenta is you have to stir it forever because otherwise you don't actually make polenta. You make uh, things that have blobs of cornmeal in them. Right. Uh, Well, there's going to be uh, the other fun thing about having a new appliance in my life is it's inspired me to try a bunch of new things, right? I was getting in, in a bit of a recipe rut. The downside, the real downside of the Instant Pot is that many of the recipes that come supplied with it aren't quite accurate. Ah. <laughs> so there is some trial and error involved where the first time you do something, you might get, well, this is okay, but I should have put it in for a couple more minutes. Or next time I make rice pudding, I'm going to change the ratio mm-hmm. uh, because the corpus of Instant Pot recipes is not quite evolved enough, and I don't, uh, I've been... Uh, well, it's like crockpots. It took like 30 years for crockpot recipes to actually get good. Yes. And it's not the problem that, that the flavor is wrong. Uh, the problem with the recipes so far is that the, the timing is sometimes off. Or, exactly. Or uh, the amount of water absorption you need for a, a rice dish is not quite there. So, or, or people forget, you know, uh, the, 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 the sort of the chemical way in which spices release their flavors. And so yes. you do it at the wrong order or whatever. Yeah. And, and the thing about the other big drawback of a pressure cooker is that you put your ingredients in, then you go away, and then you open it up and see if it worked. Right. So there's no messing <laughs> no with check it in the middle. midway through. <laughs> there's no, oh, now's the time to put in the basil. It's just you've got to put everything all together, and everything you're putting together has to cook at essentially the same rate right. and work together. Uh, and uh, when it works, it's amazing. And then when it doesn't work, you know what to do different next time. So, uh, for example, in my experimentation, I haven't yet determined whether a pressure cooker will destroy fresh herbs the way that a slow cooker will. So there's mm-hmm. no point in putting fresh herbs in a, a slow cooker dish. Right. Yeah. You just ruin everything. Right. Uh, cream dishes don't work in a slow cooker. I don't know if they can be made to work in a uh, uh, pressure cooker. I've done some curries, but not cream curries. Uh, but anyway, it's uh, uh, for those of you who are looking for a new... Uh, a project, something where you can go and uh, paint your miniatures or uh, stat up a new character while you're waiting for uh, your uh, uh, delicious uh, vegetable meal or uh, rice pudding or what have you to uh, to prepare itself. Uh, I am here to heartily endorse the cult of the instant pot. Now, does it uh, does it make um, does it make rice uh, as well as a, a regular rice cooker? Yeah, it makes. Uh, I have not just made rice. Uh, I've done the risotto version, but but right. it's it's. You want to make a porridge. You want to make a soup. You want to make uh, uh, multi grain rice or uh, white grain rice, and it comes with all sorts of preset settings. And then you probably want to uh, experiment with those a bit and right. move them up or down as you. Uh, the the one thing that I would not bother to make again in the instant pot so far is quinoa. I know you're opposed to quinoa in general. I agree with you there. Not when the, uh, uh, it was actually more convenient to just go ahead and do it the regular old fashioned, uh, pot full of water way. But, uh, other than that, uh, I've, uh, had great success with that and look forward to further experiments. So I guess the takeaway is that if you don't already have a pressure cooker and a rice cooker, you might as well get an Instapot because it will do both of those superbly. Um, and then if you don't mind having a smaller than average, slow cooker if you're cooking for two instead of for eight 
maybe it might be your slow cooker as well, right? Although, actually, this is larger than my slow cooker. Is it? Yes. Well, is it because you've got a small slow cooker or a big Instant Pot? Uh, I guess it's a big Instant Pot. How many How many, How many? many uh, liters or whatever is it? Or quarts? Um, it's like an eight quart. Oh, so that's that's a big freaking Instant Pot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got the giant Instant Pot. Yeah, I, I would go for the... If you're purchasing, I would... I would recommend going for the the, the bigger one. Uh, there's even a Bluetooth version now, so that you can communicate. <laughs> so the, so the people with in uh, so people in Ukraine can cook your uh, polenta for you. Yes. Now it's not a Wi-Fi one, so I don't know what like if it's Bluetooth, you're still within range of it. I don't know yeah. why you can't just hit the button manually, but yeah, that makes it sound so much more exciting. <laughs> it's it's the um it's the sort of the attempt to get guys to buy an instant pot, but it has Bluetooth. Yeah, <laughs> you, you don't have to get off uh, up off the couch to go and press. A button. <laughs> okay, I think that we have we have um uh, we have learned that, and the, I oh I, I, we keep having great ending points, but then I keep thinking of other things. Um, the other great thing about this would be if you make beans from dry beans. Yeah, right. You do it like instantly instead of for a day, basically. Yes, it, it recommends that you uh, uh still soak beans, but uh, in a pinch you can just throw in unsoaked beans and it'll do it. Right. Um, because if you're soaking them beforehand, you might as well just cook them. But if you can do it the other way, look at all the time you've just saved and all the money, because even though canned beans are better now than they ever have been, they're still more expensive. Right. And if you, and they're super full of sodium as well. So if you want to uh, to cut down on your, uh, salt and have some other flavor dominate your food, or you need to do that for health reasons, uh, Mm -hmm. that's a a good reason to do that. And, uh, you know, a soaked, Kidney bean is always uh, better than it can, kidney bean taste-wise. There you go. So, uh, on the spectrum of things you might think about uh, for Christmas, if you are or your loved one is without a pressure cooker, maybe cast a weather eye towards your Instant Pot. If you're the sort of person who actually actively wishes to get a food thing for Christmas, uh, this is a thing to uh, ask for or to be super sure that the person you're giving it to considers it a Christmas present. Or that uh, the person that is in your life listens to Ken and Robin talk about stuff regularly, especially this episode. Exactly so. Speaking of this episode, we are now going to go pay for it a little bit and then move to another segment. The covert agents of Delta Green fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. Your players are those agents. As their GM, you need to handle them. That's why you need the Delta Green Handler's Guide, the game's game moderator-only rulebook. Including such essential eyes-only features as... A history of the world of Delta Green, from pre-human times to the present day, with campaign tips and scenario seeds on every page. Sinister rituals, unnatural entities, and reality-shattering great old ones. New threats to shock and terrify your agents. The secret of Delta Green organization in deep and disturbing detail. And the other ruthless conspiracy that claims it is the real Delta Green. Oh, those jerks again. Ah. Also includes Operation Fulminate, the Sentinels of Twilight, a sample scenario ready to play. Your players, they are the apocalypse. You, you moderate their apocalypse. With the Delta Green Handler's Guide from Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once again to wend our way up the cobweb stairs, to wave at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, who just glowers back at us. But we don't care. We're used to her uh, 
um, sour attitude because we're happy to head on into the parlor where waits the consulting occultist. And he has a smoking jacket on, uh, but he's also uh, got uh, some uh, Argentinian uh, meat over on the grill uh, because next door to Argentina is Chile. And in Chile, one finds the so-called Witches of Chiloé, who uh, on this remote island of Chiloé, uh, off the coast of uh, Chile, were uh, tried in the eight, in 1880, not for witchcraft, but for uh, racketeering and manslaughter and all sorts of things. But it turned out that there was a uh, cult of, uh, were they warlocks? Were they shamans? Uh, they were bad news if you weren't paying protection to them. Uh, they called themselves La Recta Provincia, the Righteous Province, and they were a society within a society of the local uh, Mapuche uh, people who were, uh, at that time, uh, only recently brought into uh, the nation of Chile. Uh, the island had remained Spanish longer than the rest of the area. And so, uh, Ken, this is a, an amazing story full of great uh, supernatural and occult and folkloric details. So where do we uh, start uh, unpacking the story of the witches of Chiloé? I mean, there's a couple of places you can go. I mean, first of all, uh, the witches of Chiloé, this is not just white guys saying awful things about the Mapuche because they had the temerity not to be conquered as rapidly. This goes back to the Incas. The Incas said that these guys were problems. So in a way, this is kind of like South America's Finland, where everybody who ever washed up against Finland, the Russians, the Swedes, the Vikings, everybody has always said, well, Finland's where you keep your crazy witches, and that's a, a problem land. To the same degree, the uh, Incas said it, uh, probably whoever was before the Incas said it, because this is not the kind of thing that that uh, springs up uh, organically just from one culture. And then, of course, as we've just heard, the Spanish said it, and even the Chileans said it themselves when they came in to investigate these um, uh, activities there was, um, at least at one point, a story, and whether or not it's a story with a basis in fact uh, is, I guess, up to other people. But there is a, a, a sorcerer who had heard of the uh, of, of the witches, the warlocks of Chilote. They're not girl witches, they're boy witches. It's very important to them. A sorcerer named Jose de Moralada, uh, who believed he was the best uh, sorcerer in the world. He came to uh, have a sorcery duel with the Machi uh, Chilipila, who was, uh, the most powerful warlock of Chiloe and was defeated. And he gave him his magic book, which contained all the magic lore of the world. And so that's where the Chilotes believed that they got total magical power was from beating the best warlock in the rest of the world in a warlock duel back in the 18th century. So if, um, their sort of weirdly syncretic magic, uh, is explained to themselves, not as the natural consequence of being next to a basically Western Christian society for 200 years, but uh, from having beaten Western Christendom's best sorcerer and taken everything cool from him. So they have, they have a really, it's, it's not quite a cargo cult. It's, it's even the next level above where rather than beg the foreign, uh, uh, gods to provide the mana, they beat the foreign gods and took the mana. So they have, they have a real, um, uh, they have a real attitude that I like. Yes, we were already powerful enough to take down the guy with the Necronomicon, and we got the Necronomicon, and we've incorporated that as well. So, exactly. Uh, make sure you pay your protection, folks. Mm-hmm. They also have a, um, a, a, a chupacabra-type monster that lives in uh, Chiloé and is sent out 
to, uh, you know, do their bidding when they don't have time to sorcerer you directly. They send out the Caloche or Caloche, um, which is, uh, a ghost ship and a monster to get to it. Right. And, uh, it's all manner of, of sort of, it's, it's like a magical, um, being slash boat that, that will hunt you down if you try and, I guess, leave the island. In this case, it would be like the, the rover from the prisoner, uh, prisoner village that'll hunt you down. And then they have, uh, monsters that are basically, you know, tamed undead that, uh, they would, um, uh, that, they, that they would send after you. The, um, things that were once a baby, um, that they kidnapped a baby and they turned it into the, the monster, the Imbunche. Yes. There's a very horrible graphic description of what you do to surgically alter this baby in order to well, grow up as a horrible monster. And you don't want that. <laughs> no, that's these, these guys are bad guys. Uh, the, uh, and the Imbunche guarded their, uh, hidden cave where their treasure was, where all their generations of, uh, shaking down the locals for their, uh, uh, protection money. It was also guarded by uh, a lesser monster, the goat-like Chavato. So I guess uh, you send your your rogue to fight the Chavato while the uh, fighters with all the armor go and fight the Invunche. Right, and then hope that the uh, the wizard can prevent the Machis and the and the source and the Brujos from coming after you. Uh, they had familiars. Uh, you got a uh, when you uh, were inducted. Into La Recta Provincia, you were given a uh, a lizard familiar who would uh, hang around in your shoulder and uh, do that usual thing of magnifying your magic and uh, giving you uh, extra senses. And uh, they had uh, magic items as well. There's the uh, uh, if you want to fly, the secret of that is to have a gravity defying waistcoat. And the secret to a gravity defying waistcoat is you dig up a recently buried dead Christian and flay their flesh and make the waistcoat out of their flesh. So obviously that's uh, an ad- an addition to the lore that occurs after Christians arrive and yep. you start skinning them. Yes, the Jesuits set up one of their colonies in the Chilote Ar- or the Chiloe Archipelago, and so they probably uh, took uh, askance the attitude of the Mapuche Indians in the area, and I suspect that may be the beginning of that particular... Even after death, no one wants to be a waistcoat. Yes, and, and uh, plenty of people, even in life, don't want to be run by Jesuits, so <laughs> I suspect there was a degree of ill feeling on both sides. Yes. Another really vivid detail is that the... Uh, these warlocks had uh, the capacity to, they would, uh, if you, they could kidnap a teenage girl, take her off to a ceremony, feed her this foul brew from a uh, horrible fruit that grows only on that island, and uh, it is uh, so uh, horrible that it causes anyone who's forced to drink it, as these poor unfortunate teenage girls are in this story, uh, it causes you to vomit up your own intestines. Of course, as we all know from science, what happens when you vomit up your intestines as you are then light enough that you turn into a bird. And then as a bird under the command of the warlocks, you can go and spy on your enemies and, uh, and do magical recon. And then weirdly enough, this has a sort of happy ending in that when the girls come back, they can then uh, re-ingest their intestines and go off uh, none the wiser, not knowing that they've spent all night as uh, magical spy birds. Do they, do they have to drink vinegar to re- reincorporate their intestines? Like in uh, Malaysia, uh, I did not see any vinegar in the in this account that I saw. But you know, it's always possible. Can't rule it, it out. It is always possible. Um, another thing, uh, if you're looking for more uh, connections to things, Charles Darwin spent six months on Chiloé Island, and uh, mostly uh, cataloging animals, but also listening to the Chilotes complain that they didn't have a king anymore. 
And that may be sort of a political aspect of this uh, Chilote witchcraft uh, uh, empire, because, of course, they claimed that they were kings. They called themselves the king of Peos and the king of Kikavi. And underneath their royal uh, selves were uh, queens and viceroys and the actual uh, bad guy shamans that went out to do the damage, the Reparadores, the Repairmen, which I think is a great name for uh, a, a warlock that goes around and, and messes you up if you don't pay the money. So the the desire for a king, maybe hearkening back to having been treated maybe a little better under the Spanish than they were by the Chilean Republic after they finally took over the island in 1826, might have created the socio-cultural facts on the ground that lead this uh, classic uh, Hobbesbaumian sense, uh, bandit, uh, uh, revolutionaries to style themselves, uh, kings and, uh, take advantage of the fact that also they had magic powers and could make you vomit up your intestines. Right. Uh, and if you, uh, got behind on your protection payments, there's a couple of things you had to fear. In addition to all of the things we've already mentioned, yes, in addition to everything else, uh, one of them is just good old fashioned beating that, uh, you know, like most warlocks, uh, worth their salt running a protection racket. You know, it's just more economical to just have a bunch of guys with muscles crack skulls. That's, you know, pretty easy to demonstrate. But the thing people really worried about was the Sayadura, which was a magically inflicted profound slash. And so uh, they could uh, wound you uh, from a distance. So that's your basic, uh, you know, disruption spell that we uh, know from uh, so many uh, fictional magic systems. So, uh, in, in 1880, uh, just give us a brief uh, look at the political situation. Right. In 1880, uh, Chile is, as it so often finds itself, at odds with all of its neighbors, uh, being um, at that time rich in guano, not quite at that time rich in copper, but it's going to be. Um, and all of its neighbors uh, covet that endless seacoast. Uh, Peru covets the northern chunk of Chile, which at that time was the big guano deposit area. And Bolivia covets the seacoast, which is also the northern chunk of Chile. So, right. so there's, a, there's a concern among the Chilean government that the good uh, indigenous people of uh, Chiloé are not willing to go off and, and fight uh, Peru and Bolivia. Like at the literally to. other end of the country. Yes. Um, and meanwhile, Argentina, of course, is constantly making trouble and saying, wouldn't it be fun if Argentina had the whole southern tip of South America and is probably uh, got agents of influence out there uh, disguised as fishermen and whatnot. Right. And so uh, they decide to crack down. And so they uh, uh, realize that there's this... Uh, shadow government that's not their government they're not running it they're not getting the taxes and they figure out that this guy named uh mateo Conunisar is apparently the the king of uh of the uh the warlocks of the rector provincia or the uh mayoria the the majority as they call themselves and so they put him on trial uh not as previously mentioned uh the, you know they didn't they don't believe in witchcraft being real but they realize that this guy is uh, someone they got to knock off if they uh, want to run the place. Also, he's, he's sheltering deserters from the war. Uh, and that's the problem. And so uh, they uh, try uh, him and some other people for a manslaughter and for belonging to a, quote, unlawful society, unquote. Uh, and uh, they are uh, convicted that year. And then most of the sentences are commuted the following year. Uh, but it is uh, from uh, his copious testimony at trial that many of these uh, rich details uh, uh, come. So, you know, maybe he was trying to freak them out a bit with some of these stories. <laughs> the um, uh, 
always the possibility with the stories is that they are being selected for uh, either government propaganda purposes or by the newspapers who have to write something about this and would rather write about witches than about uh, uh, war uh, draft dodgers. So they uh, find something exotic and exciting. But the fact that this sort of legendary stratum provably goes back, you know, 400 years before it indicates that there is uh, a- at least something to the suspicions of the Chilean government. And, you know, it only takes it. They would not be the only murder society to disguise their activities uh, with occult uh, mumbo jumbo. Um, you, you just have to look at the Tonton Makut in Haiti as another classic example of people who are basically um, or organized crime, but operate with a deliberate uh, occult veneer. Right. And so uh, he did tell the authorities about their 40-mile cave uh, in which uh, they had all their treasure. And, and then he told them about the monsters guarding the cave. But weirdly, uh, undoubtedly due to some sort of illusion magic, the authorities never found the cave. But uh, we have found this exciting segment. We got a credit, Patreon backer Paul, for asking us to uh, talk about the witches of Chiloé. So do we even need, Ken, to describe these sorts of things that you could do if your characters went to the uh, island of Chiloé or a thinly fictionalized version of it. I think we've... Yeah, I mean, we've got... It writes itself. There's there's so much... How, how mean, can we make this weird, Ken? Yeah, how can, we, how can we possibly add something strange to this story of ghost ships, baby monsters, and human fat waistcoats? Um, uh, they're oh, otherwise that's what so, we forgot to mention. The cave was lit by a burning human fat. Right. Yeah, and um, uh, the the glowing human fat on uh, the, the the waistcoat that you make allows you to see when you fly around at night to do evil. Well, yeah, you, you need to be well lit in order to right. Absolutely, uh, you, you might run into something like a like a like a witch or a bat or a bat witch. Right. Now, there's uh, there, there's endless amounts of of stuff. We probably haven't even begun the the depth of Patagonian mythology, which is its own sort of exciting thing that very, very few people look into because it's at the far end of the world, obviously. And oh, and the, the island was a, a haven for piracy? In the, yes, in it the was pirates in the 1600s, so. yeah, and 1500s, because, again, that's where pirates go, is islands near valuable ports that are not governed particularly well or that are governed fairly loosely. And So, uh, so that's how you get your player characters there, with a map with an X on it, and they think it's just an X to some pirate treasure, and it turns out it's the location of the cave where the uh, uh, Chivato and Invunche are waiting for you, and that's not good. No, it isn't. Or maybe, uh, you know, Charles Darwin uh, appeals for your help when he comes back to Britain. He's like, I couldn't put it in my book because it would look weird, but seriously, there's an island of witches. If you guys could go with your steampunk technology, could go sort that out, that would super help me. Right. Or uh, this creature that I brought back in my uh, leather case with me that uh, I could not figure out how this creature fit into my theories, so that's why I brought it back. And now that I'm now that I'm back in England, it's escaped. Could you go? Could, could you help me find that uh, or, for me? Or, or I captured a mysterious bird when I was in in Chile, and it turns out that was a, a a girl who had been under the control of these witches, and so now she's in London, and the witches are like, "Wow, this is a target-rich environment if ever we've seen one." Uh, right. Uh, well, uh, it, as we said, it all writes itself. So, uh, listeners, you can go off and write it up for your next uh, adventure, and we're gonna uh, head off on our magic seahorses, onto our magic uh, ship that will sail around the world and be back, containing a fresh new podcast, same time next week. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astrogalm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Carefully release the Steam vent alongside such patrons as Kevin J. Maroney, Mark Giles, Matt Ballara, Rich Renalo, and Scott Stefanski. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>